Good evening, and uh, welcome to the inaugural event of Black Jewish Relations Week, sponsored by the Princeton Committee on Prejudice. I'm the chairman of the Princeton Committee on Prejudice. My name is Dylan Tatz, and uh, I'm very happy to be here tonight with two wonderful panelists, Dr. Murray Friedman and Dr. Henry Louis Gates, are kind enough to join us this evening. As you can see from your programs, a great many uh, departments and organizations are kind enough to co-sponsor this evening. And in addition to that, I'd like to single out three people who have really been instrumental in putting this whole thing together, all three events for Black Jewish Relations Week. Uh, first, Susan Wasco from the Center for Jewish Life, uh, who lent some extraordinary administrative skills to this, was instrumental. Nathaniel Fintz uh, built our wonderful website. And uh, Sarit Katan wrote a beautiful editorial on Black Jewish Relations last week that really inspired me to put this together in the first place. This evening's lecture and discussion by Professors Friedman and Gates will focus on the relationship between African Americans and Jews, past, present, and future. Tonight's format will be, will be as follows. Professor Friedman and Professor Gates will each give a brief lecture, about 20, 30 minutes or so, and then we'll open up the floor for questions so we can spend a little more of our time than in normal lectures having a discussion as much as is possible in a large room like this. So we encourage your questions in the latter half of this evening's program. Uh, if you'd like to get together later tonight or some other time to discuss this issue in a smaller setting, Ms. Florette King is a faculty member, and her group Dialogue at Princeton will be hosting a series of small dialogue groups. One will be tonight at 9 p.m. right after the lecture, and the rest there are sign-up sheets right over there at that side of the podium. You can sign up to be a part of these small dialogue groups if you'd like to talk about this individually. Our two panelists, as mentioned, Professor Friedman and Professor Gates. Professor Gates is currently a visiting fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, and more permanently, he's the W.B. Du Bois Professor of the Humanities and Chair of the Department of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. He's one of the world's leading scholars on African American studies, a role which he has likened to that of a Talmudic scholar, someone whose job it is to preserve the tradition, to resurrect the texts and key events of the past, and to explicate them. Dr. Gates has written or edited 55 books and is the author of the groundbreaking full-page editorial in the New York Times of July 20, 1992, which confronted the flammable issue of anti-Semitism among African Americans. This is a very big article, even uh, 12 years ago. Professor Friedman is the former Mid-Atlantic States Director of the American Jewish Committee. And he was appointed by President Reagan to serve as the Vice Chairman of the United States Civil Rights Commission from 1986 to 1989. He is currently the director of the Meyer and Rosalind Feinstein Center for American Jewish History at Temple University and is also the author of the 1995 book, What Went Wrong? The Creation and Collapse of the Black Jewish Alliance, which is a comprehensive history of black Jewish relations, which traces this relationship from the abolition movement in the early 19th century to the Crown Heights riots of 1991. In it, he writes that only by studying what this partnership was and was not can we put the present conflict in perspective and lay a foundation for rebuilding relations between these two groups in the future, which is precisely by the subtitle Past, Present, and Future what I hope, hope to accomplish this evening. Uh, Professor Gates, we'll begin. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. I really think we should give it up to this young man for putting this together. I mean, it's really great. Thing. Must be 120 sponsors on that on that poster. 
Um, my talk this evening is called Sour Grapes. Before one even broaches the subject of black-Jewish relations, maybe we should pause to wonder if there exists such a subject at all. Irish-Jewish relations? Japanese-Jewish relations? Somehow none of these are hot-button issues. So there's a question of familiar, familiarity as well as antipathy, of unusual closeness as well as suspicion. And it may be that the tensions in black-Jewish relations are the product, in part, of a certain symbolic intimacy. We know that black-Jewish relations have seen better days. Over the past decade, we heard Steve Coakley, then an aide to the mayor of Chicago, assert that the Jews were engaged in an international conspiracy to rule the world and that Jewish doctors were busy injecting black babies with the AIDS virus. We heard the Nation of Islam leader, Minister Louis Farrakhan, condemn Judaism as a quote-unquote dirty religion and allege an age-old Jewish conspiracy against black leadership. We heard a black tenured professor at CCNY elaborate conspiracy theories about Jews and Italians. We saw Crown Heights explode into vituperation and violence. Attitudinally, at least, recent surveys show that over the past 25 years, anti-Semitism has diminished among white Americans, but it has increased among black Americans. As Letty Pogrebin reported in The Nation, and I quote, blacks are twice as likely as whites to hold significant anti-Semitic attitudes, and she continues, even more alarming, it is younger and better educated blacks who tend to be the most bigoted. Now, how far this all seems from the days when Dr. King protested the unjust treatment of Soviet Jewry, as he did in 1964, with the fervent admonition that, and I quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice to any people is a threat to justice to all people, and I cannot stand idly by. Even though I live in the United States, and even though I happen to be an American Negro, and fail to be concerned about what happens to my brothers and sisters, who happen to be Jews in Soviet Russia. For what happens to them, Dr. King concluded, happens to me and to you, and we must be concerned, unquote. So what happened? Now, I don't think that there is any one story to tell at this point. There are many stories, each of which would fasten on different kinds of explanations. Dashed hopes on both sides have exacerbated the rift. Despite the achievement of formal equality, much of black America remains mired in poverty, and poverty has always bred bigotry. Beyond that, everyone has their pet theory. The black journalist Clarence Page, who I happen to like a lot, has ventured that, quote, we didn't live up to the expectations Jews had of us. They expected blacks, once Jim Crow was beaten, to aspire towards success the way Jews did, education. Blacks, he continues, decided to aspire the way the Irish did, city hall, politics. Unquote. Well, maybe, maybe not. But what's clear is that in the post-civil rights era, a once powerful political consensus fractured as many civil rights leaders sought to move beyond formal equality to more remedial and, frankly, interventionist, and needless to say, controversial, measures in the attempt to mitigate black poverty and economic inequality. In 1954, the Anti-Defamation League filed an amicus curiae supporting blacks in Brown v. Board of Education. 
23 years later, the American Jewish Committee filed an amicus curiae for Alan Bakke. The times had changed, the issues had changed, and to some extent it seemed the alliance had changed as well. Then, too, you could factor in the indirect social consequences of the redlining and blockbusting policies of lending institutions in the late 60s and 1970s, policies which, as Hillel Levine and Lawrence Harmon point out in their book on Boston's Jewish communities, made mortgages available to blacks only in Jewish neighborhoods on the assumption that Jews would be more tolerant to these black newcomers than would be the Irish or the Italians, but with the eventual consequence of singling out these urban Jewish communities for dissolution. And you could set these more recent trends against old tendencies, the inner city animosity aimed at the landlord or the grocer, the sort of animosity that Koreans now seem to suffer the brunt of in today's urban battlefield. Or you could consider the long tradition of Christian anti-Semitism, given the historic importance of Christianity in the black community, especially in its revivalist forms. Now here, we should bear in mind the figure of the ancient Hebrews in the formation of African-American religion. As numerous commentators have noted, a profound identification has linked African-Americans and Jews throughout the years. Invocations of the children of Israel and their experience of slavery and oppression, the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, the very figuration of the African-American spirituals. All of these things speak to a complex typology that was constructed between the biblical account of the ancient Hebrews and the enslaved people in the New World. And so a complex dialectic of identification and antagonism, symbolic intimacy and symbolic enmity is the product of an involuted history. But maybe the strongest temptation today when black America is beleaguered on all sides, is simply to ignore the salience of black anti-Semitism. Still, why make a fuss over the resentments of the relatively disempowered? Who does it really hurt? That's a fair question. The answer, first and foremost, is that anti-Semitism in the black community hurts us through the politics of distraction and the politics of distortion. Getting the source of our problems wrong is an obstacle to solving those problems. Objectively speaking, black anti-Semitism isn't primarily a Jewish problem. It's a black problem. In the words of the formidable feminist critic and black um, social activist Barbara Smith, and I quote, we don't oppose anti-Semitism because we owe something to Jewish people, but because we owe something very basic to ourselves, unquote. That's why those of us in the black community must make the point loud and clear that being anti-Semitic is not a way of being pro-black. The resistance to such home truths has seldom been more in evidence. The recent instances are, frankly, quite disturbing. UCLA's Afro-American newspaper called NOMO defended the authenticity of the notorious Zaras Kennard, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. In February 1991, the campus publication featured an article headlined, Anti-Semitic, Ridiculous, Chill. If, and I quote from the article, if our calculations are accurate, the article tells us, then there is no way that the Protocols of Zion and the International Jew could be anti-Semitic. These books, you might ask yourself why, 
These books don't talk about African people at all, the editorial continues. Rather, they discuss a small group of European people who have proclaimed themselves God's chosen by using an indigenous African religion, Judaism, to justify their place in the world, unquote. Far more worrisome, as the chairman of UCLA's sociology department, Jeffrey Alexander, has pointed out, is the aftermath of that episode. Eventually, he said, Jewish faculty issued a petition that denounced the article's hatred and bigotry, but they were virtually alone. Few non-Jewish faculty joined in the condemnation, and black faculty, he argues, were completely silent. Now imagine an article defending one of those 19th century pro-slavery tracts under the headline, Racism? Ridiculous. Chill. Would the reaction on campus have been the same? There is then some evidence of a spreading canker within educated black America's public moral discourse. Even worse, there are those who, displaying a rudimentary sort of grade school sophistry, would define anti-Semitism out of existence. Is the term anti-Semite in its current usage an etymological misnomer? Well, strictly speaking, most words in the English language are etymological misnomers. Correct usage means respecting the use words currently have. Now, many scholars argue that there is no such thing as race as a biological category. Following a similar logic, you could imagine someone who hated blacks denying that he was a racist. How can I be, he might argue, if there's no such thing as race? As Lewis Carroll's Carroll's sophistical egg, Humpty Dumpty, would say, now there's a glorious knockdown argument for you. Humpty Dumpty, you may recall, insisted that words mean whatever he meant them to mean. Today, the most popular and pernicious form of Humpty Dumptyism is the defiant insistence that black people cannot be racist by definition. Now, the claim is, of course, often dismissed as preposterous on its face. But in the spirit of Humpty Dumpty, the key phrase here is, by definition. But this is not a new factual claim, but a rhetorical move. The term racism, you see, is redefined to refer to systemic power relations, a social order in which one race is subordinated to another race. Now, a parallel move is common in much feminist theory, where patriarchy, naming a social order to which man and woman have a fixed and opposed relation, contrasts with sexism, which characterizes the particular acts a particular people. And in all fairness, it does formulate a widely accepted truth. The asymmetries of power mean that not all racial insult is equal. For example, not even a a Florida jury is much concerned if a black captive calls his arresting officer a cracker. But nonetheless, this is a grave political error. For black America needs allies more than it needs absolution. And the slogan, in this case, a definition masquerading as an insight, would all too quickly serve as blanket amnesty for our dankest suspicions and bigotries. It is a slogan those in a position of moral leadership in the black community must repudiate, not for the sake of white America, no, for the David Dukes in the world, the display of black prejudice only provides a reassuring confirmation of their own prejudice, but for the sake of black America. If racism is to be deplored, it must be deplored to core and without exemption clauses for the oppressed. That ethnic scapegoating 
was an unaffordable luxury is a lesson that we should have learned a long time ago. Georgia has the Negro, James Baldwin once pithily wrote, slicing through thickets of rationalization, and Harlem has the Jew. Unquote. We have seen where the failure of this vision has led, the well-nigh surreal spectacle of urban activists who would rather picket Korean grocery stores than picket crack houses, presumably on the assumption that sullen shopkeepers with their pricey tomatoes, not smiley drug dealers and their discount glass vials, are the true threat to black dignity. In other contexts, you sometimes hear people try to establish a comparative metric in which it makes sense to say that racism is a worse sin than anti-Semitism. Now, while it is certainly true that black Americans are, on average, much worse off than white Americans, including, of course, Jewish Americans, this sort of comparison is either meaningless or obnoxious. Yet, as the Afro-American moral philosopher Lawrence Thomas has argued, there is a troubling asymmetry between racism directed against blacks and anti-Semitism directed against Jews. And it pivots on a curious contrast between inferiority on the one hand and iniquity on the other. Simply put, it goes like this. While racism has historically been a doctrine that attributes intellectual inferiority to its subject, the Christian practice of anti-Semitism makes it, in some essential respect, a doctrine that attributes evil to its subject. There is, Thomas continues, and I quote, a difference of no small order between simply judging a people to be inferior and judging a people to be inferior because they're being evil, or at any rate, morally depraved, is an eliminable and ineliminable part of their constitution. It is this belief about Jews, he writes, which is a conceptual feature of anti-Semitism, and it would seem to be unique to it. It's a very interesting contrast there. He continues, the existence of those believed to be inherently inferior does not violate our moral sensibilities. There can be genuine connections of goodwill, even in the context of inferiority. By contrast, he continues, the existence of those believed to be inherently morally depraved does, and necessarily so. Therein lies the basis he continues, for the unusual hostility toward the Jews. The moral order, as human beings are able to grasp it, can well accommodate those who are inferior owing to ethnic constitution. It simply has no space for those who are morally depraved as a matter of ethnic constitution. Now, I think that Professor Thomas is quite right in his, to insist on the religious character of anti-Semitism that there are secular versions as well, doesn't vitiate the claim, which is a claim about etiology. For when we recall that anti-Semitism was an integral part of mainstream Christianity for most of its history, it should not be surprising that the religious sect of the black Muslims, a sect whose relation to traditional Islam is tenuous at best, should have presented this element as well. In any event, it is clearly a far from incidental aspect of its structure of belief. One approaches this area tentatively and reluctantly, and perhaps that is as it should be. Ours is a religiously plural society, one that depends on tolerance for its survival. The question of how to address the religious propagation of intolerance is therefore a vexed question for all of us. 
but address it we must. And it is a matter of particular concern because of a burgeoning and ominous alliance between certain streams of the contemporary Afrocentric movement and the nation of Islam's own well-developed positions. Now, I don't want to exaggerate the problem this evening. When it comes to the posturing of college students, there's a stanza by Carl Sandburg that's very much to the point, and I quote, why do the children put beans in their ears? When the one thing we told the children not to do was put beans in their ears. Why do the children put molasses on the cat? When the one thing we told the children to do was not to do was pour molasses on the cat. Sandberg's questions are, of course, meant to be self-answering. And it's important sometimes to remember that youth has always sought to outrage its elders. But we can't let it rest there. What troubles me is such is that such a callow, self-destructive, and invidious path should be invested with the glamour of defiance. Dr. Leonard Jeffries, principal source on Jewish misdeeds, and he's quite open about this, is the official publication of the Nation of Islam's History Research Department, a book entitled The Secret Relationship Between Blacks and Jews. The, book's, the book has been widely circulated within the black community, unfortunately. It is still regularly cited by a growing number of would-be black spokesmen. Once at the end of a press conference, the rap performer Ice Cube, one of the most successful recording artists in history, held up a copy of this book. When they go after our brothers in this BS, he said, you know what I'm saying, just look to this book, he exhorted. Try to find this book, he concluded. Everybody try to find this book, unquote. What we're urgently important truths that this book conveyed? Why was it so important that everybody get hold of it? It isn't only rappers like Ice Cube or Professor Griff who make powerful claims for this book. At an address at the University of Illinois, speaking before a capacity audience of 15,000, Farrakhan extolled the new publication of the Nation of Islam, and I quote, I want to tell all of you, he said, that I have never been anti-Semitic. I've never been a hater of Jews, nor am I now. And that was why this book was produced, to set the record straight. He vowed to send a copy of the book to every member of the Black Caucus, to all black leaders, and to every black preacher in the United States, which would have guaranteed, believe me, that it was a bestseller, because we have a lot of black preachers in the United States. This is not to create hate, Farrakhan continued, but what it is to do is to rearrange a relationship that is not beneficial to us, but a relationship that, is, that has been detrimental to us, unquote. The result of the Nation of Islam's labors is a worthy companion volume to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion and to Henry Ford's update of that document entitled The International Jew. Now, this book makes no bones about its objective of establishing Jewish guilt. In its 334 pages, it asserts that Jews bear massive and disproportionate culpability for the slave trade. Jews defended the Confederacy. Jews owned and trafficked in slaves in the New World and otherwise were generally responsible, in large part, for all of the woes of the African-American people. And if it isn't in your local bookstore, Farrakhan continued, you can order a copy by dialing 1-800-48-TRUTH. Yet I wonder whether the spuriousness of the book's historical research may not distract us from the larger and more troubling issue that books such as this raise. Now, the, at the outset, I think it's important to reflect that whatever the historical record, 
it is particularly dangerous to regard culpability as heritable. The book's major premise, in other words, if you think about it, is a doctrine of racial continuity in which the racial evil of a people is merely manifest rather than constituted by their historical misdeeds. The reported misdeeds are then the signs of an essential nature that is evil. Needless to say, it's a sentiment at odds with one of my favorite passages from Ezekiel. And I quote, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set at edge. No more shall this be said in the land. Now, sadly, as the historian Harold Brackman reminds us over and over again when he writes about this book, the real history of blacks and Jews is nowhere to be found in the secret relationship. In part, it is a story of shared suffering. Two years after the founding of the Ku Klux Klan in 1868 in Tennessee, a man named S.A. Beerfield, a Jewish storekeeper, incurred the wrath of the Klan by accepting black customers. And, so they charged, even selling blacks ammunition with which to defend themselves against the mounting wave of white terror. The Klan murdered the shopkeeper, along with the black man who worked for him. But you'll never read about Beerfield in the secret relationship between blacks and Jews. Nor will you read about Jewish civil rights workers like Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner, slain in Mississippi, of course, along with Jim Cheney. Yet the truth, as my dear friend Cornell West observes, is that when blacks search for allies in their struggle against racism, they, quote, have found Jews to be disproportionately represented in the ranks of the struggle, unquote. What remains the case is August Bebel's famous 1907 maxim, and I quote, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools. Minister Farrakhan speaks of the need to, quote, rearrange a relationship that has been detrimental to us, unquote. Rearrange is a curiously elliptical term here. If a relation with another group has been detrimental, it only makes sense to sever it as quickly and as irrevocably as possible. In short, by rearrange, he means to convert a relationship of friendship, alliance, and uplift into one of enmity, distrust, and hatred. It is in everybody's interest that apostles of bigotry not succeed. But for black America, it is quite simply a matter of our people's survival. And even as we decry the appearance of scurrilous tracts like the secret relationship, we must remember that many African-American clergy and intellectuals have, of course, spoken out. The horrific spectacle of blacks shouting, how Hitler amidst the tumult of Crown Heights is and should be profoundly disturbing to all of us. But it has also been strongly condemned within the black churches in Harlem, Brooklyn, and Queens. From Emmett Till to Yankel Rosenblum, Yankel Rosenbaum, this is progress. Many black clerics and intellectuals know better. And the lynching of Yankel Rosenbaum was widely and passionately condemned in our black churches as well as in our synagogues, even though we don't expect, expect this to attract the attention of the New York Post. But we also know that the world of the Post is not the world, ladies and gentlemen, that we inhabit, that the world contains unexpected kindnesses as well as cruelty, bridges as well as boundaries. Letty Progrebin observes, maybe Jews and blacks lock horns more than other groups because we are the only ones who take each other seriously. 
the only minority groups who still seem to believe that our identities are inter and our destinies are interwoven. There are innumerable Jewish black dialogues, he notes, but where are the Italian black or Irish black conclaves? Where indeed? Others have taken a more whimsical approach to the subject. At the end of Studs Terkel's book called Race, we were introduced to a fellow named Lloyd King. And Lloyd says, since our father was black and our mother was Jewish, we call ourselves Jew bros. Me and my brother, the race of the future. An interesting idea. There are always so many more reasons to split up than to remain in dialogue. And there are good, sound, logical reasons to go our separate ways. Reasons for staying tend to be more quixotic, tenuous, requiring a faith. It's so easy to come up with litmus tests from the daily newspapers. Do you agree with Sharon on West Bank construction or with Teddy Collett? Do you agree with Julian Bond on affirmative action or with Stephen Carter? All of these are, no doubt, very important issues which citizens can and will debate and discuss. Neither the American Jewish community nor the African-American community is remotely unified on so many of the hot-button issues of our day. If we're, look, if we're looking for excuses not to talk, we have an embarrassment of riches, excuses for days. But the relations between blacks and Jews must not be allowed to founder on litmus tests. We are ourselves too numerous and too diverse for unyielding party lines. If a shared experience of racial persecution is to bring comity rather than division, it must never be allowed to descend into the sport of comparative victimology. And we need to stand clear from the inter-ethnic rhetoric of entitlement, of obligation and resentment, the owing and collecting of kindnesses. In the words of the black feminist Barbara Smith, again, we don't oppose anti-Semitism because we owe something to Jewish people, but we owe something very basic to ourselves. I want to return to a passage from Ezekiel. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set at edge. No more shall this be said in the land. Now this is as conventionally glossed an admonition against collective guilt, the ascription of guilt to a group by virtue of the sins of only some of its members. But it is equally a caveat on the subject of historical guilt, if you think about it, the notion of the heritability of guilt, guilt across generation and across time. No more shall this be said in the land, Ezekiel tells us. And yet both notions of collective responsibility and of historical guilt, notions that are, I think, parasitic on the idea of collective identity, continue to haunt the public language of morality to this day. It vexes the notion of memory and of the historicity, the historical rootedness of who we are. For in a world fissured by ethnic strife, we know that cultural identity is so often bound up in memories of who has wronged us and less often whom we have wronged. The passage with which I began presents itself as a repudiation of an aphorism, cancellation of received wisdom, of an idea to be found elsewhere in the scriptures. But why labor the point? Perhaps this is something that we all know. Why, after all, should the children suffer from their parents' misbehavior? Why should we inherit the enmity of history as an heirloom to be carefully preserved intact? 
And yet, and yet, should the suffering of our ancestors be as nothing? Is not the world we inhabit profoundly shaped by the struggles of our forebears? Can we make sense of our own legacies if we erase the past and pretend the world was created anew at our birth? Plainly, Ezekiel does not tell us to forget the past as if this had ever been possible. We may survey the bloodshed among Serbs and Croatians, among the Azerbs and the Kazakhs, Armenia and Turkestan. We survey these things with enormous dismay. And yet, who among us tonight would tell the Armenian, for example, to forget that his people were massacred so recently in the early 20th century? The past, ladies and gentlemen, leaves scars, scars that cannot be whisked away with a bland counsel to forgive, to forget. Nor should anyone tell us to forget the bitter history of slavery. It is a tragic aspect of a shared American history that both black and white America must preserve in our national memory, the amber of history. Jew and Gentile alike must always remember the atrocity of the Nazi death camps, of that brief span of time in which one out of every three Jews on this planet was murdered. No, Ezekiel's message is not to forget the wounds of history. It is predicated, after all, on the collective memory of a people. And the past cannot be put to rest until we have been put to rest. Ezekiel does not tell us to close the book of history. Rather, it is an abjuration of the doctrine of historical guilt of guilt and therefore punishment incurred by the accident of birth. Now, the Bible contains two well-known moments that appear to contravene this ordinance. One, of course, is the curse placed on the sons of Ham in retribution for Ham having seen his father's nakedness. Now, it's a passage that has been misappropriated to provide biblical sanction for slavery, for the subjugation of the African, and indeed for anti-black racism itself. The other passage I have in mind is, of course, to be found in the New Testament, in which the Jews, so we are told, must accept the guilt for Christ's death, something very much on our mind, all thanks to Mel Gibson lately, taking upon themselves and upon all the generations to come. It is this passage that was used to provide biblical sanction for anti-Semitism, the persecution of Jewry across the Christian millennia. Two passages, two lineages of oppression link the Jew and the Negro. Whether the fathers ate of sour grapes, we can only conjecture. All we have certainty of is that the children's teeth are set on edge. Only too often has Ezekiel's ordinance fallen on deaf ears. Yet it is because we have learned from Ezekiel that we know that social policies cannot be indexed to historical reparation, but to contemporary social justice. The past can never be forgotten, but it cannot be indemnified either. That is a fundamental truth that we still must wrestle with. I said a little earlier that the Jew and the Negro know about trans-historical guilt because both have been so accursed. But the apostles of bigotry today have been effective, astonishingly effective, in disguising the historical kinship that these two groups have, kinship of persecution. A recent Yankelovich poll shows that over the past 25 years, anti-Semitism has diminished among white Americans, but it has increased among black Americans. 
blacks, it says, are twice as likely as whites to hold significant anti-Semitic attitudes, and even more alarming, it is younger and better educated blacks who tend to be the most bigoted. How far all this seems from the days when Dr. King protested the unjust treatment of Soviet Jewry. Today, all of us can look upon lawlessness and anomie and hopelessness, if we can bear to, in our inner cities. And Dr. King's insistence that we must be concerned has a special trenchancy for us all. Already the winds are shifting. In the black community, an alarming wave of separatist, neo-nationalist posturing is already in the making, one that esteems rage rather than compassion as our noblest emotion. And I'm not entirely optimistic, I have to say. As the poet says, we must love one another or die. But if we cannot break out of the regress of score settling, of grievance and counter-grievance, then there is no hope for us. The past must be a wellspring of moral courage, which is to say, we poison its wells if we reduce it to a sump of hatred, a renewable resource of enmity everlasting, where the sins of the past are visited upon the children and their children and their children until perhaps there are no children left. No more shall this be said in the land, Ezekiel warns us. No more. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Gates. Uh, Professor Friedman. <laughs> he told me not to fall asleep. Uh, <clears throat> Professor Gates is uh, on jet lag, and he warned me that that might be a possibility. <laughs> so I'm... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, first off, uh, I want... Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I want to thank the management here for inviting me to be a part of this uh, fascinating uh, topic and discussion. Uh, I'm particularly pleased to uh, share the platform with um, Henry Skip Gates. Uh, as you can tell from how he spoke to you tonight, uh, this is a man who uh, approaches subjects such as this with a ruthless honesty and without uh, any effort to uh, play games. Uh, how many of you saw the wonderful documentary that uh, appeared a, a few months ago, prepared by Professor Gates, uh, with regard to the um, problems and uh, the future of the African-American community, once again, characterized by honesty, great integrity. So I'm very pleased to be with you tonight. Thank you. Skip. Um, even though you stole some of the points that I was going to make. <laughs> uh, there's always been a special relationship between 
African Americans and Jews. Uh, one of the things I had meant to mention is that we don't have a, a discussion of black-Italian relations or black-Polish relations. So there's some inexorable type of um, affinity or identification between these two groups that is, is quite unique. Uh, from the African-American experience, I believe that uh, part of the reason for this uh, special identification has been the thought that uh, African-Americans, too, can um, follow the path that Jews uh, laid out, especially in this society, uh, and make it into the promised land. Uh, African-American uh, liturgy and uh, folk music is filled with uh, discussions uh, and uh, attention to the Hebrew experience. And so that, I think, is part of the beginning of this special affinity. So, similarly, from the very outset of the major Jewish experience in America, which stems from the latter part of the 19th century, uh, Jews have felt a special identification with uh, blacks, African Americans. This has uh, traversed all levels of Jewish life. For example, the more assimilated and wealth, wealthy and uh, uh, integrated uh, German Jews at the close of the uh, 19th century uh, engaged a fair amount of their energy with regard to efforts to uh, support the uh, black community. Uh, many of the German Jewish leaders of the time uh, identified especially with Booker T. Washington, uh, Julius Rosenwald, the uh, Sears uh, uh, business leader, Sears Roebuck in Chicago, uh, laid the basis for the Southern uh, African-American public school system when the Southern states were unwilling to make available uh, uh, schools for, for their black citizens. Uh, so that, uh, that segment of the Jewish community was deeply involved in attempts at racial change. Similarly, the uh, immigrant Jews who were arriving at the turn of the century uh, clearly identified with African Americans. And you can read in the literature of the forward the Jewish, the Yiddish newspaper of the turn of the century, immigrant uh, experience, uh, constantly making reference to the unfortunate lynching of blacks and uh, identifying with the black experience uh, totally. Despite these uh, feelings of uh, identification and common uh, experiences, the historic black-Jewish relationship has always been more complex than, than, than has been portrayed by those who you know, want to indicate that we will all march together, uh, dance under the maypole, so to speak. Um, there are tensions from the very outset, and part of honesty and realism is to try to factor into some understanding 
of that situation as well. Uh, in the 1930s, the, uh, there were uh, tensions that were kind of slid uh, aside, pushed aside, uh, as both groups attempted to move forward together. There was the fa famous uh, slave market that uh, existed in parts of the Bronx where um, Jewish women frequently would uh, go down to an area where black women would be uh, presenting themselves for day labor and uh, bringing them home to uh, do work there. Uh, it was called the slave market uh, because blacks had to uh, come forward there and, and they had to be picked. Um, there was also the, the, the underlying tension of um, merchant and landlord relationships. Uh, Jews originally in New York lived in Harlem, and then as they began to move up in the society, they um, moved out, but left behind uh, a, um, a pattern of businesses. Uh, and out of these relationships grew certain tensions. There was the issue of, um, uh, of credit, buying on the books, so to speak, where uh, unable frequently because of poverty to meet their economic uh, obligations, uh, they were often der derived credit uh, from the, uh, from the uh, merchants in, in the area. Not a situation meant to produce harmonious relationships. Uh, charges uh, were brooded about early on that uh, landlords were overcharging African-Americans. On the other hand, uh, it, the complexity of that situation is, is evident in the fact that many of these merchants and the Jewish businessmen uh, were, were anxious to promote bright, young uh, African-Americans. They, they provided employment for them in their stores and tried frequently to uh, help them rise in the educational firmaments. So that, again, is a, a very, very complicated situation. In the period following World War II, uh, the Black Jewish Alliance uh, in, the, in those years reached a kind of high point. Uh, I'm talking about the period, say, from roughly uh, 1945 to uh, mid-1960s. Mid uh, Jewish agencies such as the American Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Congress really thought of themselves less as Jewish agencies and more as civil rights groups. Uh, I was a part of that world for many years. I was sent into the South in 1954 uh, as a young and uh, inexperienced uh, uh, kid to work in the least important office of the Anti-Defamation League, which was in Richmond, Virginia, covering the states of Virginia and North Carolina. Uh, this was a place to put someone who didn't know what he was doing and, uh, and could make a minimum of trouble uh, in, in that, well, in 1954, all hell broke loose <laughs> and uh, hit 
the upper states of the South, Virginia, North Carolina, before moving south into uh, Mississippi and uh, other uh, southern, more southern areas of the, the country. In this period of time, from roughly the end of the Second World War and um, uh, the mid-60s, the Jewish agencies uh, pioneered in the development of the Civil Rights Revolution. In fact, in my book, What Went Wrong, I used the phrase that uh, this was a period, the Jewish phase of the Civil Rights Revolution. Um, we had the mimeograph machines. We had the organizational know-how. We'd been around since the committee it was created in 1906 and the Anti-Defamation League in 1913. And so we, we got through state legislatures city uh, uh, councils, uh, a body, I say we, by that I mean that the Jewish agencies were joined with groups like the NAACP and the Urban League and church groups of various kinds and labor groups were joined together in coalitions to put through such legislation as fair employment practice legislation, um, fair housing legislation, various forms of, uh, of what came to be the uh, beginnings of the Civil Rights Revolution. Uh, in the case of the American Jewish Committee, for example, when I first came aboard, uh, our national head, John Slauson, uh, hired a young black psych- psychologist uh, to uh, write a paper showing that desegregation uh, resulted in harmful effect, segregation resulted in harmful effects on black children. Uh, he hired uh, Kenneth Clark to do this. This was for a conference on, uh, on ch- children in, in 1950. In 1954, when uh, Judge Justice Warren handed down his Brown versus Topeka, Kansas decision, uh, there was a famous footnote number 10 in, in that decision. Uh, Warren argued that uh, uh, segregation had a pernicious effect on the hearts and minds of uh, black children. Uh, and then he said, see footnote 10. So this was a kind of high point uh, this period, uh, I was secretary of a Pennsylvania grouping of uh, civil rights groups, and hanging on my wall for many years was a picture of us smiling as Governor Lawrence in Pennsylvania signed the state fair housing law. The problem that began to develop, however, was that the gains created by the Civil Rights Revolution and Martin Luther King's marches in Selma and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and the Civil Rights Act of 64, these gains did not reach down deeply enough in the ghettos of America. Uh, In many ways, the Civil Rights Revolution was won. Uh, The formal apparatus of segregation was destroyed. States and cities no longer could formally 
discriminate. It's against the law. It's against the law to discriminate in rental and sale of housing and so on. But in a final analysis, this did not affect the day-to-day life of African Americans uh, who seem to be in many ways sinking deeper and deeper into the mire of the uh, unwholesome setting of major cities in America. And so a movement emerged. Uh, Skip uh, refers to it uh, briefly in his remarks. A movement began to move away from the strategies of the Jewish civil rights groups and Martin Luther King, who remained throughout his life, as, as Skip has pointed out, a strong advocate of integration strategies, to strategies of what I would call black nationalism. The idea that African Americans should no longer look to uh, groups like the, Af- the American Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League, that they should take control of their destiny. And the focus should no longer be necessarily on integration, but on building communal strength, or as uh, Stokely Carmichael put it, building black power. It is only through uh, your ability to command the society to make available uh, the full equality that blacks could, could really find their way uh, to becoming full and equal citizens. Well, there's nothing particularly wrong with that idea. Uh, indeed, it's true. Uh, people need to engage themselves rather than be dependent on other groups or on, let's say, the government for your ability to have success. The problem began to develop, though, that among some of these new leaders, people I will name as like Malcolm, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, uh, others, the, an ideology began to form among them that argued, first off, identified with uh, the struggles of other colored peoples around the world to achieve success, to get out from under the, uh, the uh, difficulties of imperialism. And so they began to identify with uh, the struggle of colonial peoples to free themselves from oppression, which they argued was similar to the way in which black Americans were struggling to get out from under oppression in the urban centers of American life. The focus often came to focus uh, on Jews. Uh, Israel began to enter into the picture of black nationalist ideology. Uh, and so many of these new leaders identified uh, with uh, Arab countries, uh, and, and their struggle to um, dis- be disengaged from, from Israel. Israel became, in their uh, reading, a kind of outpost of uh, Western imperialism in the Middle East, a counterpart, they would further argue, of uh, Jewish oppression uh, in the ghettos of America. Now, this came at a particularly uh, sensitive moment in, in, in the Jewish experience, 
1967, uh, you recall, the um, Israel entered into a preemptive strike, a war, with uh, the surrounding 40 million Arab uh, populations in what we call the Six-Day War. Uh, and then a few years later, in 1973, at the height of the Yom Kippur observance, Arab armies invaded Israel. And for a moment, Israel looked as if it was going to be driven into the sea, the people in Israel. Uh, the, you know, given Israel's vaunted intelligence apparatus, it entirely failed. And the Arab armies swept across the desert, and um, Israel, Israel was up against it. Fortunately, in the United States, the president authorized a, uh, a massive infusion of materials, tanks, and other equipment. And uh, Israel's civilian army, because basically it's a civilian army, was able to mobilize and turn it back. But at that point, something happened to the Jewish community that had uh, not occurred before. For many years, uh, the Jewish community was bent on assim assimilation, I mean, becoming part of the American scene as full and equal partners. And the Jewishness of these uh, agencies like Committee and Anti-Defamation League was really underplayed. When I came to work for the American Jewish Committee, it basically was a race relations operation. Uh, it was not... It was not identified especially with Jewish things. The argument, of course, was developed that the way you fulfill your Jewish destiny was by bringing justice to the world, tikkun alone. And so uh, we were a civil rights organization rather than a Jewish organization during this period of time. And that's how I grew up uh, as a young man and as a, a young um, professional in the field of uh, uh, Jewish community relations. In the period that followed, uh, I think in part because of the growth of black nationalism and to some degree the anti-Semitism that Skip Gates has described to us, a series of incidents occurred that heightened this Jewish sense of either anxiety or paranoia I use the word paranoia because, in many ways, the Jewish uh, rise in American life has been light lightning-like in speed. Uh, we've become increasingly more accepted, uh, more uh, Americans identify with us more, and yet uh, you find yourself with a Jewish community today of unparalleled material well-being and unparalleled acceptance in the society and unparalleled anxiety, unparalleled anxiety, hence Mel Gibson and what that does to, to Jews. Uh, but a series of new episodes began to emerge, uh, episodes like the uh, terrible Ocean Hill-Brownsville uh, situation in 1968. For those of you who don't remember, under the... Um, pressures of, uh, of the new black leadership uh, spurred on by a WASP patriciate 
at the Ford Foundation, the idea emerged that uh, the way African Americans could lick their problems, especially in the schools, was to take over the schools themselves uh, and engage in a process called community control. Well, uh, in Brooklyn in 1968, uh, spurred on again by the Ford Foundation and, uh, and um, McGeorge Bundy, who moved from the Triumph he had, he had developed uh, in Vietnam, to another attempt to uh, improve the situation, this time of African Americans. Ocean Hill-Brownsville was the, uh, a critical issue. Uh, an advocate, Roddy McCoy, of, uh, of, of Malcolm, took over the schools. And the first thing he did was to fire 13 Jewish teachers. The teachers were seen as not identifying sufficiently with African-American hopes and dreams. Albert Shanker, the head of the teachers' union, uh, a union which had an extraordinarily uh, fine record as having taken part in civil rights struggles throughout the earlier period, called for a strike. Uh, Anti-Semitic agitators began to work on the situation. And the bottom line is that a, um, a further chasm between the two communities emerged. Uh, that has never since been um, remedied in New York City. Uh, a young uh, scholar that we funded through the Feinstein Center, Gerald Poder, has recently written a history of Ocean Hill Brownsville, and he argued that the liberal alliance that um, existed at that particular time, previous to that time, was thoroughly and totally shattered. There were a series of other episodes that uh, put Jews' teeth on edge. Uh, the concept emerged that uh, one way of solving and uh, dealing with the, uh, the African-American condition was through the use of racial preferences, sometimes called quotas. Well, this began to be pushed forward, uh, and many Jews bridled. Jews have a, a memory of quotas as being part of the way in which the WASP leadership at Princeton and, <laughs> and, other, and other places uh, had tried to keep down Jewish advancement in American life so that uh, these, um, this issue became a, a, a hot-button issue and still is to some degree because the issue still percolates. A series of other incidents occurred. I, I don't have time to lay them out. And I guess the most devastating um, more recent issue has been Crown Heights. Uh, you may remember that um, an accident occurred. Uh, a, a grouping of automobiles uh, uh, were, were traveling through the Crown Heights section of, of Brooklyn, which is the uh, an area of Hasidic uh, um, living. And um, accidentally, uh, plowed into two black children, one of whom died. In the period that followed, there was four nights and three days of extraordinary rioting. Um, 
in which Janko Rosenbaum, a Hasidic uh, scholar from Australia, was murdered uh, in that uh, terrible uprising. Uh, the city did not respond very uh, quick to the problems. And so you had really a disastrous situation, all of which taken together has um, created a, uh, a series of um, conflicts and uh, tensions. I think I'll try to wrap up because we're only allowed 20 minutes. What can we expect under the circumstances of the early black-Jewish relationship and the relatively um, uh, successful efforts of the two groups to work together? Where are we today? My sense is that I'd be interested in Skip's reaction to this. My sense is that we've seen a certain calming of the, um, the heavy black Jewish tensions of the 1980s. Jesse Jackson uh, uh, has moved away from the very, very hostile and aggressive behavior. You may remember in 1984, he uh, delivered himself of the famous Jaime, Jaime Town remark, Jackson has moved away and has made every effort to reconcile with the Jewish community. Skip, you make reference to you know, Leonard Jeffries and to Louis Farrakhan, and I would add a couple of other characters <laughs> uh, like uh, Tony Morton, oh, yeah. uh, an alleged scholar. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, one of the interesting things in the last few years, you don't hear too much about these people anymore. I haven't heard the name Jeffries mentioned for seven, eight, nine years now, from the time in which he was storming around at City College. Louis Farrakhan uh, has avoided uh, any explicit anti-Semitic statements lately. In fact, I was contacted by one of, um, by Jude Winitsky, who was lined up with him to try to reintroduce him to the Jewish community. <laughs> I said, no way. <laughs> no way. Uh, I think we have seen a, a certain calming of the black-Jewish uh, relationship. There are still um, uh, annoyances. There's recently been uh, a problem with regard to elements of the black caucus uh, who have been resistant to lining up with the state of Israel in its present uh, intifada. I'm not saying, oh, in fact, most of the members of the Black Caucus are friendly uh, to Israel, but a number have not been. And you may remember about a, a year or so ago, two uh, black uh, congressmen, one actually a woman, who had been outspoken in their uh, hostility to Israel, uh, were um, targeted, literally targeted by the Jewish community for defeat. Uh, they poured money into their elections, and by God, they were defeated, which did not win friends uh, with uh, elements of the black community. So I think that um, in spite of some of these continuing pressures, we are, we are seeing a calming. Put it, putting it another way, uh, I think we're seeing a sort of normal, normalization of black Jewish relationships rather than, you know, the uh, extraordinary burst of 
energy the two groups exerted together. A normalization, that is to say, uh, both groups seem to be traveling at the moment independently. Jews are caught up with their internal problems, problems of uh, the faith of Israel, the heavy loss of life, and other internal problems like assimilation. For example, uh, the Jewish rate of uh, intermarriage today is 51 or 52 percent, uh, which means that a group that has suffered through fire and, fl fire and flame for several thousand years is uh, likely to, uh, is, can possibly disappear because of the benign uh, manner in which Americans are uh, dealing with Jews. Uh, Irving Kristol has made the uh, curious comment that Jews should stop worrying about uh, Christians hating us. We should stop worrying about them marrying us. <laughs> uh, so both groups uh, are going in, internally in their own directions, worrying about their own internal problems. Yet some of us old-timers who, you know, participated, I uh, was there in, when Martin Luther, Martin Luther King spoke at the March on Washington. Uh, I bear some scars from my experiences working in the South, where I became a pariah in Virginia because of my strong uh, activities uh, on behalf of uh, equal rights. Uh, some of us hark back to those noble days when we marched together, when we sang together, and in a few instances died together, as Skip has mentioned with regard to the three young civil rights workers uh, uh, in um, uh, Mississippi. Uh, so we, we, we hark back to those golden days. There's much work that needs to be done. And I think it's important for us to begin to re-explore that golden age when Jews and, and blacks worked so assiduously together to make this nation whole. Thank you. Thank you, Professors Friedman and Gates. Uh, I'd like to open up the floor to questions right now, if there's still anyone here. Um, <laughs> yes, up here in the front. He wants to know, um, I talked about the heritability of guilt and responsibility. And what, was it what would its relationship be to my stand on reparations, right? I can't talk about reparations in general, but I talk about for me. The um, you know, I've, I've uh, I did a piece in the, on the op-ed page of the Times two summers ago about reparations, which I said symbolic a symbolic form of reparations um, is something that I would support because I think that the American people have not dealt with the fundamental role of slavery and the creation of the nation. So I love the reparation debate, and I really applaud Sister Ruth 
Simmons at Brown for appointing this committee to study the role of slavery in the history of Brown and basically encouraging it to make some kind of recommendation, at least as she was quoting the Times, because we've been in denial for a couple hundred years in this country about the role of slavery. I mean, when I was, I'm 53, when we studied the Civil War, and school wasn't about slavery. It was about the Constitution. You know, it was about uh, keeping the South from seceding from the Union. That's what it was about. And incidentally, it was about slavery. You know, and I used to look at this and say, excuse me, you know, <laughs> what's this really about? So I think a symbolic form of acknowledgement of the role of slavery, like through the continuation of affirmative action, um, the uh, subsidizing um, drugs for those who are HIV positive on the African continent, things like that, would be a collective form of reparation that I would support. I don't believe that a check's going to come in the mail for every African American because our ancestors suffered suffer from slavery. But let no one leave here with the misunderstanding that if the check does come, I'm going to take my check. <laughs> I'm going to be right there. <laughs> but uh, so that's what I think. Yeah, in the, only in the way that I said, though, and only for the reason that I said. Could we uh, do something with regard to the issue of slavery of Jews in Egypt? <laughs> uh, <laughs> sure. That's <laughs> in the back.
Sure. Well, I'll answer first if that's okay. No, I did mention um, a couple things. One, the filing of the amicus brief for, Brown, you know, the contrast between Brown v. Board and Bakke. And obviously I am, uh, if anybody here knows anything at all about me, you know that I am a firm and vocal advocate of affirmative action. Um, and I don't understand why I'm, everybody's not a firm advocate of affirmative action. How could 35 years of affirmative action wipe out two centuries of slavery, followed by a century of de jure segregation. And as far as I'm concerned, one of the main reasons for the uh, rupture between blacks and Jews occurred over Baki. I think that you absolutely trait your, your lineage of the, the breakdown. I mean, Oceanville, uh, Brownsville, uh, was Ocean Hill, Brownsville, was crucial. I mean, but it was symbolic things have been building up. Stokely Carmichael, black power, independence within the movement, the right to call our own shots, et cetera, which was natural in terms of the progression of the political movement. But it did reach um, a symbolic height, I guess, with Ocean Hill, Brownsville, and then Israel. You see, and you talked about how it quieted down. Affirmative action is still a big issue between blacks and Jews. Israel is a huge issue between um, blacks and Jews. A lot of um, anti-Israeli sentiment either mass anti-Semitism or it's a convenient substitute for anti-Semitism, or gets mixed up with anti-Semitism, it's a vexed, it's a vexed issue. But, you know, if you look at Jews socioeconomically, they look like Episcopalians. If you look at Jews um, politically, they vote like Puerto Ricans. <laughs> Black people, Puerto Ricans, and Jews all vote 70 80% for the Democratic candidate. I mean, last time, black people voted 90% for, for the Democratic candidate. So the way you described it is a little more, it's not as complex as it really is. Okay, well, we're going to find out soon enough. Yeah, that's right. I hope, I hope not, but, you know, it, it might be that way. I still think that um, I have no idea why um, uh, anybody would not find diversity a signal value in admissions policy still in this country, and it really angers me when I have to stand up and defend um, affirmative action. But I think that um, my job is, so like, to quote Wally Shayinka, one of my great friends, um, uh, criticism like charity starts at home. I mean, my job is to stamp out or try to be one of the people stamps out anti-Semitism within the black community, just like I'm equally concerned about homophobia in the black community or misogyny in the black community. This is where I live, man. You know, it's what I get paid to do. Um, I can't, I don't know what Jews talk about at night behind closed doors because I'm not privy to that. I would hope that you would stand up and, or within your community and stamp out anti-black racism when I'm not around or when none of the black people in this room are not around. That's, that was my rhetorical strategy. Uh, in my talk. But also, another part of the rhetorical strategy was to say, look, black people have been disagreeing with each other since the first two slaves got off the boat in 1619 about how the hell to get out of here. Jewish people, you know, there are all kinds of jokes about if there are five Jews in the room, there's six opinions, right, and, thing, and things like that. We cannot, you cannot sustain a marriage by agreeing politically or pretending that you're going to agree politically. We can have an alliance across religious and ethnic lines with, by, without having to agree on everything. But we have more to agree with, more to support each other about than we do to disagree. And that's what 
people like Cornell and, and me and, and other people, Anthony Appiah, and other people have been trying to do. And finally, I think that one of the reasons Jeffries has been, and Tony Martin, I mean, Tony Martin still writes, you know, anti-Semitic stuff. But one of the reasons you don't hear about him so much is a lot of black intellectuals have stood up, no one more forcefully than Cornell West, to say this is wrong and we're not going to tolerate that. And that's a very important thing to do. You don't allow bad arguments to go just because somebody's against affirmative action. I mean, you know, you can't embrace anti-Semitism or allow your own people to support idiotic anti-Semitic tracts like the secret relationship. We can agree to disagree about affirmative action, but that doesn't al allow me to turn a blind eye toward anti-Semitism. Um, I, I might add, though, Skip, that part of the reason why this mode of thought and behavior may be less uh, around these days is because of the outspoken, courageous uh, efforts back in 1992. You took a shot at that in the pages of the New York Times. Uh, uh, and a person of your standing and respect goes up against it, and you are an African-American. It has meaning. But now to come to your question, I'm not going to assign, you know, what percentages of this uh, tension or conflict uh, belong on which side mm -hmm. of the uh, black Jewish worlds. Uh, I do think, though, that you have it profoundly wrong in, in a very real sense, and let me explain. I know this will shock many of you, but the richer Jews get, the more liberal they become. It is the working class Jews, the um, taxi cab driver who will get shot in his car, in his, uh, it'll be the school teacher who uh, uh, is visited by the excesses of the of the race revolution. Um, uh, it is the poorer people who cannot escape, poorer Jews, who cannot escape to the suburbs and to more protected uh, uh, high-rise apartment buildings in center cities. Uh, it is those Jews who are, more, are becoming more conservative. Uh, the more well-to-do Jews uh, continue to uh, be at the same stand. Uh, Skip is right. Uh, Jews vote heavily Democratic, which means that they will connect with many of the issues that the Democratic Party projects. Uh, I, uh, you're right about your figures. Uh, the Jewish vote for um, uh, Bush in the, in, the, in the 2000 election was roughly 10, 12 percent. Uh, but that's not an, uh, an uh, I mean, that, that sort of reverses your argument. They're still there. Uh, in, in, in liberal cause. Now, it will go up. There's no question in my mind that uh, in November, the Jewish vote will be higher. Uh, indeed, the American Bush. Jewish... For Bush? For Bush. Uh, the American Jewish Committee did a poll recently, and this is all contextual. In the sense, you know, what's happening at that given moment in time uh, is very important, mm. you know, when they go to the polls. But the American Jewish Committee's most recent poll of Jews indicated that 35% uh, of Jew, uh, uh, the Jewish vote will go to uh, Bush. So on that sense, 
you are, you know, correct that that's becoming more conservative. But I think Jews are tenaciously liberal uh, and, and indeed resist their, their income uh, and other forces that would drive them to the right. Uh, but there's no question you're also right. Hey, I'm always, always on both sides of this. <laughs> uh, you're also right that there is a, a more conservative tendency emerging, mainly out of anxiety uh, that uh, exists in the Jewish community uh, at this moment in time. I think that it's, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, the class divide within the black community, you mentioned very kindly, thank you, the, my last um, film series, um, PBS, and it's about the class divide within the African-American community. So basically, since that terrible day in 1968 when Dr. King was killed, the black middle class has almost quadrupled, which is good news. The bad news is that the percentage of black children living at or beneath the poverty line is about 40%, which is exactly what it was the day Dr. King was killed. So there's this huge class divide within the African-American community that nobody talks about. You see, people talk about the two nations, meaning black America and white America. It's not like that. It's like the two nations, the haves and the have-nots. Affirmative action, for me, my generation, was a class escalator. If you looked at the student body at um, Yale when I went there, many of us who got in, we only got in because of affirmative action. What does that mean? Does it mean we weren't qualified? Absolutely not. But there were strict racist quotas on the number of black people allowed to matriculate at historically white elite institutions. And God knows Princeton was the worst in the Ivy League. I mean, this is just famous. No offense, Shirley. Sister Shirley, as Cornell would say. <laughs> but, you know, it's true. Princeton was it's like a white-only sign was on this joint. And, uh, um, and so... No Jews either. And if you, and well, no Jews either, right. <laughs> All these voices said, no Jews, no Jews. <laughs> Yale had a quote on Roman Catholics until 1963. I wouldn't have gotten in, no matter how intelligent I may or may not be, I wouldn't have gotten into Yale in, in 69 because I was from the wrong class background within the black community. What's that mean? Class 66 had six black boys to graduate. My class had 96 men and women, black boys and girls, black men and women, allowed to to come there to matriculate. If you look at the biographies of the six black boys who graduated in the class of 66, one's father was a doctor, one's a lawyer, one's an undertaker, one was a minister, one was a numbers runner. <laughs> that puts you in the black upper class at that time. <laughs> and my daddy, God bless him, will be, I hope, 91 on June 8th. Uh, he worked two jobs. He's got a 70-year-old girlfriend. <laughs> my brother and I had a big party for him on his 90th birthday and we asked him what he wanted for his, his birthday he'd done so much my brother's the chief of oral surgery over at Montefiore Hospital and there's a little old me bringing up the rear and so we said you know daddy what can we give you anything you know with anything you want and he said without missing a beat <laughs> he calls me boy it's his term of endearment for me he said boy all I want is to bump Bob Dole off that Viagra commercial <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't want to go there, Daddy. I don't want to think about it. <laughs> but he said, um, I mean, he worked two jobs for 37 years to put me and my brother through college. He was a laborer in the paper mill in the daytime and a janitor at the Chesapeake and Potomac Telephone Company in the evening to put me and my brother through school. Why am I telling you this? I wouldn't have had, no matter how intelligent I may or may not be, I wouldn't have had the class background to be a allowed through the filters within my own people to be one of the six black guys allowed to apply to Yale. Anybody who thinks that 
that Rosa Parks was a tired working woman who just sat down on that bus, it's ridiculous. It's the biggest lie that we've perpetuated among ourselves, our own people for a long time. Rosa Parks was an upper-class black lady who was trained in the, the techniques of nonviolence. She was sent away. She was chosen for that role. In fact, a black woman, this is famous among black scholars or scholars of black history, there was a black woman who sat down a couple of years before in Birmingham. She was dark-complected. She didn't have... Uh, the right kind of public appearance, and most important of all, she didn't, uh, I mean, she had had a baby out of wedlock. So she was really tired. She was the myth that was created. She sat down on the bus, and all these civil rights leaders said, man, what to do, what to do? And when they found out she had an illegitimate child, they just went to her and they said, we are going to act like this never happened. <laughs> because you had to present, represent, who was going to represent the race, who was the presentable. You know, you couldn't be too dark, you couldn't be too this, you couldn't be too that. We had the most racist, self-conscious attitudes with among our own people, and class was a big part of that. So without affirmative action, I wouldn't be sitting here today, uh, this evening. You know, I certainly wouldn't have gone to Yale. Which, and for me, not to support affirmative action, after I benefited so much from it, would make me a hypocrite as big as Clarence Thomas. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be that kind of person. <laughs> That's the bottom line. Skip, skip. Could, could I um, raise a question with you sure. uh, with regard to your posture on affirmative action, or some people call it the racial preferences? Uh, my sense of it is that, and you almost illustrate it with your response now, is that affirmative action uh, basically has been a vehicle for the movement upward of middle-class blacks. And by middle-class, I'm not now talking about in income, mm -hmm. but, you know, in cultural experience, aspiration, uh, skills in organizing themselves in middle-class ways. I would suggest that um, uh, affirmative action uh, has done relatively little for the vast numbers of blacks you so properly identify are still at that 40% level. Well, it has. The reason that the black middle class is almost quadrupled is because of affirmative action. So That's what I'm saying. It, well, it, but quadrupling is quite a dramatic thing. Because right. the black middle class was able to take advantage of this procedure. The, the old black middle class, but also the black working class. When I went to Yale... You, there were a lot of first-generation, not only first-generation Ivy black kids at Yale in the class of 73, my class, but a lot of first-generation college kids, period, in, in my class. So it really was a class escalator. The problem was that all these people started fighting against affirmative action. So many places scaled it down, and then it became, as Lonnie Guineer puts in a, an essay recently, a class bridge so that my, I perpetuate my middle class status through my children through affirmative action, okay? So I, don't, I, I think that we need to add a class element to affirmative action. I want to see more and more poor black people at Princeton and not only black middle class people. In fact, Shirley, I don't know what the statistics are and you probably wouldn't want to say um, because I know that, that they're very embarrassing at Harvard. The socioeconomic profile of black kids at Harvard is higher than the socioeconomic profile of the white kids at Harvard. That's A. 
Second statistical anomaly is 75% of the black kids at Harvard, my students, are of West Indian descent, second generation West Indian. Now, when I was at Yale, 99% of us had four African-American grandparents. And what that really means is that your ancestors from Africa arrived in this country before 1808 because that's when slavery was, importation of slaves was abolished. Second generation West Indians are, you, you know, taking advantage of the educational opportunities and going to the historically elite schools, which makes you wonder what happens to all these quote-unquote African-Americans. Now, this really exercises some African-Americans, not me. I have been thinking, you know, all black people are, I mean, I love the variety of blackness uh, in my classroom and the fact that people are, I don't know what's so funny about that. (laughs) That's not true. That's not what I, what I just said, though. I think you were writing your note and you, you weren't listening. What I said was that 75% of my students are, just got off the boat, as, as people used to say. These, these are not upper class people who emigrated. I mean, these are Haitians who've taken over the taxi industry in Cambridge. As a, as a Haitian? Mm-hmm. That's great, but not my students. <laughs> so maybe the rich Haitians are coming here. I beg your pardon? Yeah, I, I said that the socioeconomic profile overall, meaning some of them are, but a lot of the immigrant, the second generation, aren't. You see, it's you got a lot of rich indigenous, it's a great question, you got a lot of rich indigenous African Americans who are perpetuating their class status, like remember there's still 25%, and then you have the socioeconomic mobility is coming through the immigrants. You see, that's my point. Black Americans are perpetuating their class status through affirmative action. West Indian immigrants are using it as a class escalator. In another generation, the West Indian kids, the third generation, will be the children of the middle class in the same way that black Americans are. We take another question from the audience. How can we get, just one more thing, how can we introduce economic mobility again, for the indigenous African-Americans in the way that the West Indians are, at least at, at Harvard. That's the question. And the final thing is, Quincy Jones' kids need affirmative action. Bill Cosby's kids need affirmative action. Henry Louis Gates' kids need affirmative action. When does it stop? When does diversity become an excuse for perpetuating our class status? Is this something that we should be arguing about within the race? I say, yeah. Uh, because otherwise, the class divide in the African-American community is going to be permanent. And many sociologists, though they won't say this publicly, think that already. They think that never will that statistic change of the four out of ten black kids who live in poverty. That would be a nightmare. I mean, Dr. King did not die for that. We need a normal distribution of class within the black community. And by normal, I mean the same percentage of rich black people, rich white people, same percentage of poor white people, poor black people, same percentage of white and black people in the working and middle class. And we, we are so far from that. It'll take a revolution to, to pull that off. Yes. Yes, over there.
Dylan, would you repeat the question? He's at, no, it was in shorter form. <laughs> I know my part. He's, he's asking about if, if the Jewish vote is going more toward Republican away from Democrat in, uh, recently. Basically, he's asking, is there a parallel uh, between the Jewish vote becoming Republican and I, I don't vote? really expect, just this is a sense of feel I have, although on the Jewish front, I think I'm basing myself on, on you know, scholarly and other materials. My sense of feel is that, well, uh, within the African-American community, you have begun to uh, have a, a cadre of, um, of Republican or more conservative uh, uh, elements, uh, it is still a community that is so caught up with um, its older forms of political identification. Uh, I don't expect to see significant change there. It's sort of interesting, if I might comment further and give myself away a little bit further, that some of the most interesting ideas with regard to uh, the black condition in America, really coming from the Republicans. For example, the whole conception of educational vouchers, which will make available funding, government funding, for poor children who are often uh, African American, is not a democratic product. The concept of using faith-based activism, which is the, what they call charitable choice, the idea of permitting more um, uh, the churches, with government funding, to become more actively involved in dealing with people in the ghetto, uh, are, are Republican ideas. Uh, and incidentally, on, on those issues, I do have a little data. Uh, most African Americans would like to see experiments with vouchers. Most African American leadership is firmly opposed. That's uh, true. That happens to be true. That's a factual All the situation. polls say that, yeah. It's a factual situation. The Jews, I think, are beginning to, uh, out of their anxieties, uh, uh, out of um, perhaps, as you point out up there, the new uh, economic advantages we enjoy, uh, are beginning to consider. But to, to, to use another quote from my colleague, uh, Milton Himmelfarb, which you were quoting when you said Jews have incomes like Episcopalians and vote like Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. I have to I have to attribute the source. Right. I didn't know where it was from. Milton Hemelfarb, <laughs> Gertrude Hemelfarb's brother. Oh, sure. Uh, has also had another wonderful aphorism. He says, as soon as the Jewish arm reaches up to pull the Republican lever, it becomes paralyzed. <laughs> well, I think that, first of all, thank you for identifying the source of that quote. But, but secondly, um, I, I, I would uh, quote him, um, well, paraphrase him on black people to answer the second part of your question. I mean, black people are not going to vote for the Republicans as long as the Republicans make, Republicans make black people feel unwelcome in their party by being opposed to affirmative action, women's right to choose, a lot of the issues that are just very important to, to African-American people. I mean, there's no gain there. I mean, why would anybody go that way? Um, though I think that it, this has worked to the detriment of the African-American community because I think the Democrats, Democrats take us for granted 
entirely too much. I mean, we have no choice. I mean, you look at all those Republicans, you think racism, you think the rollback on affirmative action, you say, forget it, we give all our support to the Democrats, and what do we get in, in return? Well, do we get a federal jobs program even under Clinton, whom Tony called the, the first black president, right? The answer is no, we didn't. Um, though rising tide economically lifted all boats, it was a pretty good time for African Americans compared to under Reagan, Lord knows, and, and now under this Bush and under the other Bush. But still, they could have done more, and uh, they could do more. And they're not, they're not shaping social programs that address this social mobility issue within the race. That is what our biggest problem is, how to get black people from the no class, as it were, to the working class, and the working class to the middle class. And unless we address that, again, the class divide in the African-American community is going to be going to be permanent. In effect, there's going to be two black Americas. In effect, there is, there already are two black Americas. The question is, will they be, will there forever be two black Americans? Yes, next one. In the front, right there. Well, I know you're looking for symmetry. <laughs> Well, the truth of the matter is that uh, I don't think there has been, uh, and I, I'm not saying this because, you know, I'm Jewish and I have to stand strong with my people. Uh, there have been uh, uh, virtually no figures, certainly no figures of serious stand, uh, of stature uh, who have uh, been explicitly uh, hostile. You may argue, you know, that they don't stand with the black community and the f causes that it it espouses, but uh, am I wrong? Uh, uh, what, what major figure, will you argue, let's say, that a, uh, a Jewish Defense League type of figure like uh, Kahani, maybe? Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah. But, but Kahani, <laughs> yeah, but Kahani was repudiated by the Jewish community totally. He had no, he had no standing. He certainly did not have the standing that Jesse Jackson had when he issued his Town remark. Uh, he was not a figure like Jeffries or uh, uh, or uh, the guy up in the board. Tony Martin. Tony Martin. Uh, I saw in the um, in the, in the, uh, the the American Historical Reviews uh, Tony Martin uh, was invited to um, review a book. Which amazed me. Uh, uh, I can't, I can't think of anyone, and I'm not trying to be defensive. Maybe someone in the audience can remember. Is anyone in the Jewish leadership or semi-leadership or, or uh, even at the lower levels of leadership that has been identified publicly with uh, anti-black statements? A couple hands. I think there's there. one over there. Say that again. Oh, are there anti-black statements made in the Jewish community sure. at the, at the uh, grassroots level? Of I course. I assure you there are. And vice versa for the black community. No question about that. I mean, there's racism in all America. So, you know, I would be astonished if there weren't anti-black racism present in the, in the Jewish community. Of course. Another there's. question over there.
<laughs> okay. <laughs> you ought to write a book. Let me let me respond to that one first. Um, yeah, I would say, obviously. But I, I cited that when I was saying, I was trying to find, um, what I was saying, we need to form coalitions. Look, we cannot solve the problems facing the African-American community without smart, savvy political alliances. And I was saying, we do have certain things in common. For example, we all vote overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party. So we can say we're going to suspend our disagreements, put them over here, like affirmative action, which is always going to be a big issue between blacks and Jews. I mean, it's not going to go away. It's only going to get worse. The pie shrinks, diversity becomes a more vexed issue because, you know, your admission into Princeton is my kids' rejection into Princeton. That's how people think of it. Whether it's right or wrong, that's how people think of it. And that's only going to get worse. But so if we can figure out areas of common ground, then we have a chance, okay? So go ahead. Give me number two. What, what do you mean by that? The black people, when they think about it in Jewish terms, aren't sympathetic to Israel?
Could you sharpen the question a little bit further? Sharpen it. Uh, <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> well, you're right. That I think that a lot of black anti-Semitism, as I said earlier, takes the form of anti-Israel sentiment. For you could, I, I didn't really understand the distinction that you were making, but it, I, I think I would if you had a, a follow-up. But I think that. There is an amazing lack of sympathy I've found behind closed doors within the African-American community for Israel and a lot of romanticization, in my opinion, of the Palestinian cause and explaining away suicide bombers and things which I find very difficult to, to justify or even to understand. The discourse seems so bizarre that it has to be coding for something else. And that something else, I think, is anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish feeling within the African-American community. There's actually a book you might be interested in called um, When When the Jew Became White, or something along those lines is the title. I forget who wrote it. When the Irish Became White, I read that one. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like the sequel to that. Oh, it is? Okay. Yeah. yeah. One, more, one more question? Sure, sure. Yes, right over here. Sure. Yeah, uh, on the issue of, uh, first off, let me be clear. Israel is capable of doing wrong, and it deserves criticism. And I can list for you a number of areas where they deserve criticism. For example, I do not think they treat as equal partners within the physical boundaries that Israel exists today. Um, it's Arab citizens. Uh, so it, there's no question that uh, Israel is capable of being criticized, and people who criticize with seriousness and with integrity uh, should not be defined as um, anti-Semitic. However, however, much of the criticism today is... Uh, this doesn't seem to be aware that when Israel responds aggressively to the murder, and that's what it simply is by terrorists, when they respond aggressively and those who criticize Israel for doing so do not uh, admit that part of the response is due to the provocation it may be a stupid response. It may not be a useful response. It may create more uh, terrorism, as maybe with the sheik who was uh, yeah. uh, uh, taken down. But if, if there's no, no attempt to understand what is, is producing this kind of reaction, hell, what do you expect them to do? Do you think that Israel's government should, recognizing that the Palestinians do not have the weapons and the tanks, and the airships to uh, respond. Do you think their response should be limited so that there will be a sort of equal treatment, so that maybe they should come in with slingshots? Uh, they're going to use their power uh, in, a, in a war situation, and a lot of people are going to get hurt. But uh, it is anti-Semitism, I would argue, when the, the Israel factor in causing the response is ignored. I would say that the... Um I mean, God, every state 
um, deserves warrants and has earned criticism. Uh, there's no question about that, and Israel is certainly no exception. What I was trying to, to say, and perhaps I didn't say it well enough, was that I've noticed a kind of simple-minded mapping of um, white oppression of black people being mapped over Israeli oppression of Palestinians in a one-to-one kind of way. And I, I think it lacks um, nuance, it lacks historical context, it lacks any kind of um, subtlety. That somehow we, the we, African Americans, are more related to the Arabic world, the Palestinians, than to uh, the people who run the state of Israel. And there's a lot of that sentiment within the African American community. And it's a, a simple-minded um, set of identifications that I don't think make sense to me, right? That aren't nuanced, that are just reflective, and they are so because it is coding for um, deeply rooted suspicion about Jews, about economic oppression in the inner city, things that you alluded to. You know, it's like bubbling up through the surface through this one figure, and the figure is Israel, the other figure is Palestine. I think this is indeed another discussion. And, um, we've actually run a half an hour over, so I'd like to thank both of the panelists for coming thank by you. this evening. And if any of you would like to discuss this further, there will be dialogue groups right now, as well as at other times this week. You can sign up on the sheets over there. Thank you all for coming.